This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. All right, what's cracking beer lovers? What up? How we doing? How we doing? I need some water. I got some. You can have some, though. I have water. Um, My mouth is dry. We are wearing the same clothes as we were last week. Um, because we are doing two episodes in a row <laughs> because we are putting out hella content. We uh, are putting out a lot of content. We have recorded a total of what? Uh, 12 episodes in the last like three weeks or so. Two no, weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Two weeks. A lot of content. We've done a lot of stuff, but lots of things with that being said, it is also 10.30 at night. So let's wrap this up. Yeah. So let's get on to the beer. I bought this so long ago um, because I bought this before we started going through the ad, the Advent beers. Okay. Uh, oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I got this one when we did those uh, those two fall beers. That I got from Total Wine. You remember the one in the blue can and the one in the orange can? Vaguely. Um, from the the local brewer. Yeah, vaguely, vaguely. Um, I cannot re- remember the name of the brewery though. That bothers me that I can't remember. But um, I bought this the same day, and it is the Founders Dirty Bastard. It is a Scotch style <laughs> ale. Um, I'm very excited about. Th- I actually like Scotch ales. We should I, add the one I had. Yeah, I, I have to be in the mood for it, and I don't know if I'm actually in the mood for this right now, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, this is one of those, it was here in the fridge, and we have to record another episode tonight. Kind yeah, of, kind that, of that's exactly where it is, what it is. So, the the sticker oh. is covering up some of the text here. Oh. Um, and I can't get to it all right we'll read as much of this as i can so good it's almost wrong dark ruby in color and brewed with seven varieties of an of imported malts oh complex and finish with hints of smoke and peat oh um paired with a malty richness and a right hook of hop power to give it the bad attitude that something Word cut off. <laughs> Named Dirty Bastard. It has to live up to ain't for the something. <laughs> great. Great. Fantastic storytelling. <laughs> it's 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 like reading an ancient document. You can't read everything. <laughs> you, can't, you don't know what it all what all of it says. Dang. Dang. So funny. All right. So, because it was one of those, like, hey, we've got to record again, and uh, we needed a beer, we're pulling out one that I ha- I just bought a 12-pack of this yesterday, actually. This is the St. Arnold's Texas Winter IPA. This is, I can't decide if it's my number two favorite IPA of all time or number three. Three for me. It's three for you. What's number one? The 120. 
And what's number two? Number two would probably be the double down. Okay. Yeah. The the St. Arnold's double down is probably my number two. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not mine. Yeah. That's fine. Um, what is yours? It's either this one mm-hmm. or the St. Arnold's double art car. The double art car. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, it's crazy that we both have St. Arnold's as two of our top three. <laughs> Look, <laughs> we're, we're Houston boys through and through, okay? We, we can't help it. All right. So this is what St. Arnold says about the Texas Winter IPA. It's available from December to February. It's seasonal release. That's not around all the time, hence the name. It's an American IPA brewed with Texas grapefruit. This beer features tropical and citrus notes from Galaxy, Columbus, Simcoe, and Cascade hops. A mild caramel sweetness and the malt body provides balance, but lets the hops shine. Mm. And it's 7.1% ABV. It has, for its barley, it has two-row, Cara 45, Cara Foam. For hops, Columbus, Cascade, Simcoe, and Dry Hop of Galaxy. And it's got an English yeast. Yeah. The English yeast is what I think sets that apart. Um, And the blend of hops that they use. I also think it's the grapefruit. Oh, well, for sure. But that's actually not an uncommon adjunct in, in IPAs. No, but it is for a winter IPA. But there's not very many people doing a winter IPA, right? I, St. Arnold's mm. is the only one that I know of that does a, quote, winter IPA. Like, what I mean, makes I guess it that's, a winter IPA other than they just release it in the winter? Yeah, I guess that's fair. Most other people that are doing, like, winter-based beers that are IPAs um, are doing doubles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Things that are a little bit darker, a little bit richer. Yeah, I guess that's fair. I guess that's fair. Um, it's still a fantastic beer, like, and I drink it every year. Yeah, I can go. I can now. go ahead and tell you, it's going to be an eight seven in my ranking. Yeah, I I love it. Um, yeah, it's so good, fantastic. But it it's a very different kind of thing. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Hey, what's your cap say? Oh, oh, I got a good one. Drink me. (laughs) I like it. It's just so good. Oh, my God. (laughs) That sounded orgasmic, Clayton. That is freaking delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. So much. It sounded good in the description. It sounded good. Okay. Oddly enough, think about the I love you this much from St. Arnold's. Yeah. Very reminiscent. Oh. And this is from Founders? This is from Founders. Is this a seasonal release or can you get it year round? I don't actually know. Um, Yeah, look look that up while... Because, so what happens... What's it called? The, the Dirty Bastard. So what happens 
as it opens up on this almost kind of candy like note. Yeah, that that it's too sweet, man. That, but oh, as like a sort of dessert type beer, it's delicious. It's available year round. It's available year round. That's awesome. It, also has two hundred seventy calories. In case you were curious. <laughs> So it opens up on this. I didn't need to know that. <laughs> it opens up on this like candy note. And it's, I, it kind of develops into this like chocolate and then this kind of dark fruit thing kind of behind that. Um, yo, I might be, I might be like eight, eight, like eight, eight point eight five like kind of kind of range. I love this. Yo, really? I really love this. Okay. It was only two bucks, too. That's not bad. It's 50 IBUs, too. Um which Okay. Yeah. I really like this a lot. Nice. That's delicious. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's been a while since I've had a beer on this podcast that I thought was that good. Wow. All right. Well, let's do some theology with these great beers. Let's do it. We continue into chapter two of engaging theology and doing theological method um, for this one. And now... We venture into a conversation. So last week we talked about sources of theology. This week we're going to talk about speaking theology, speaking about God, the language that we use around God. Um, And what Randy and Ben propose is, well, I guess they actually get this from Thomas Aquinas, but Mm. Thomas proposes that there are three approaches to the way that you can talk and communicate about God. Approach number one is that you have the exact same meaning for each reality or the univocal. Yeah. Uh, I might say, this is what they say in the book, I might say that my dog has a bark and that your dog has a bark. I've described two different dogs using the word bark, but the word bark means exactly the same thing in each claim. So... In this, a univocal approach, this would mean that when I say love, when I say I love you, my brother, and God loves me, I'm saying the exact same thing about the use of the word love. Mm. That's univocal. Second one is that there are completely different meanings for each reality. This is the equivocal. I can also claim that my dog has a bark and that the tree outside my window has bark. Again, I've used the word bark to describe two different environments or realities, but notice here the word carries a completely different meaning. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I could say, I love you, Mm -hmm. but when I say God loves me, I mean something radically different about the way I'm using that word. Your third and final option for Thomas is the analogical approach. Thomas believed that creation bears a genuine resemblance to God, even if it's incomplete and imperfect. 
When we speak of God in this fashion, we recognize that an, that an analog, such as the wisdom of my father, is both like and unlike God's wisdom. Yep. Now, of those, I think we all do each of those. Yes. For instance... I catch myself all the time as a storyteller using the word power um, as a play where I'm actually using it in an equivocal way. Mm. That when I say power, I'm actually referring to Jesus' lack of power mm. in a way. And you could say that's metaphor, mm-hmm. um, but it's very much so equivocal. Um, we also use them where they mean the exact same thing, the univocal. We use this all the time. Um, you know, for those that say God is everywhere, hmm. God is ever present. Mm-hmm. Like that, that means what it means. All right. Um, if I, if there were someone that was omnipresent, it's God. And I would say that truth about anyone that was omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the main way in which we talk about God is the analogous one mm-hmm. that we're very much so aware that the ways in which we are communicating about God somehow reflect an element of truth about the nature of God. And yet it's minuscule in comparison. Yeah. The, the way that does, 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 do they talk about this here? I don't think so. Um, in, in the, the audio lectures of this book, they kind of talked about this as like, um, actually I'm not going to go there because I think it does come back up later. So never mind. Um, go ahead. So what they say as I go through this and right after these three different ways that we can communicate about God, these different approaches, they say it's important to affirm that our language about God genuinely and truly means something, but our speech about God does not capture everything about God or his wisdom. I'm constantly aware that our aware that our great and infinite God is wiser than I can comprehend. The middle way of analogy means we can speak meaningfully, but not exhaustively. Analogical language recognizes similarities and dissimilarities. My most cautious language still has an asterisk that reminds me God is like my father in a profoundly greater way than I can even say. Now, let's talk about this. And maybe we're going to talk more about it later in, I think, the metaphor category. Um but they don't actually bring this element up, which I would like to bring up. And once again, this is very postmodern of me, but I'm given over to postmodernity. Um, our language is embedded in metaphor theory. Yep. All of language is embedded in metaphor. So Clayton, if I say to you, don't touch, don't touch that, it's hot. In your head, you have a metaphor, whether or not you realize it or even think about it. 
you have a metaphor, something that happened to you as a child in which you made up that something was hot. And whether you touched the fire outside or a scar from it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's metaphor theory. Yep. Um, all of language is embedded in metaphor. This is both great and terrible somehow all at the same time. This is why we need a little bit of ambiguity that when we communicate about God, we're communicating something and yet also not communicating something. Right. Um, because when I say that God is a father, yes, there are lots of people in this world that that actually is not helpful for them. Yeah. They don't have a dad or if they did have one, he wasn't great. Yeah. Um, it's actually not a helpful imagery or metaphor for them to make up that God is a father. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you say a good father, Odds are they may not believe that that exists depending on the level of their trauma. Right. Um, and that can be true with anything, you know, that, you know, for my own thing, you know, I'm pretty open that I frequently call God mother in my own personal prayer times. Um, and even now posting on Instagram, I try to word things in a way that I can use the pronoun he or she. And I do S slash H E in mm. reference to God. Um, but even that, there are people who don't have a mom. Right. Um, and their ma their maternal metaphor is not great. Um, so well, there's, there's people that don't grow up with parents at all. Right. Like orphans. Yeah. That, that, that don't have that kind of construct. And so what's their metaphor? Absentee. Yeah. Um, all of language is embedded in metaphor. And so speaking about God almost seems impossible mm -hmm. um, to actually say anything that's 100 and 1,000% true because it's not going to be true to everyone because right. what the heart of what I'm trying to communicate is not going to come across to the hearer the exact same way because my metaphor is different than their metaphor. What we say all the time is that metaphors break down at some level. No, metaphors always break or down, always break at, down some at some level. level. Yeah. Right, but like, I mean... How is what I said different than what you said? Metaphors break down at some level versus metaphors always break down. Yeah, I guess it's the same thing. It's just that when like, you have always, it's the definitive factor that right. every metaphor breaks down, right. not that metaphor breaking down is a possibility. Rather, it's... It does always break down. Yeah. Yes. Metaphors are not meant to... Um, be able to be broken down to the most minor minute level um they are meant to communicate truths at a basic level Correct. would you agree with that um so you might be able to take some metaphors further than others but largely they're they're not meant to be broken down They're communicating a certain thing. Yeah, uh, I think I'd agree with that. My question is not whether or not... Hmm, the thing I'm debating in my head is not whether or not metaphors are meant to be broken down. I definitely do not think that metaphors are meant to be broken down. Right. But I do think metaphors are the primary way in which we communicate truths. Which means Agreed. all of truth gets broken down because every metaphor breaks down at some level. Mm -hmm. 
Do you get you get what I'm saying? I think I see what you're saying. Because at some level, what I'm trying to communicate as truth is going to break down depending upon the metaphor of the hearer. Mm-hmm. Um, which means if I'm communicating to you and I'm communicating to heck Oliver Twist. Okay. <laughs> and I say, hey, God's like a father. Mm-hmm. You two have just made up very different truths. Right. About that statement. Yeah. Of which one is broken. Right. Now, which one of you has broken it is yet to be determined because you've not but said one anything. One of them is broken. One of them is broken because of your experience and the metaphorical way in which you interpret the word father. Right. Agreed. And so in the same way, when we approach these conversations about God and the things that we can and choose to say about God, at some level, we have to understand that we are somehow communicating a truth and yet also not communicating a truth. Because we don't have a realm of which we can achieve to talk exclusively on the level of which is God. Yeah. This, is, this is Augustine's... Like, you know, we use this all the time. I, I use it as like the the kind of thing that I use to catch people. But is God, we say God's all powerful. Mm. Is God so powerful right. they can make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Yeah. Th- this, this conversation that we're having right now is actually the literal way that that was meant to be used. Mm. What Augustine is saying is that the things that we actually say about God we actually can't say them because we don't know. We don't right. have a construct of which something is truly all-powerful. Right. We say all-powerful, and we think of strength, we think of you know um, sovereignty, we think of these things, but we don't actually have a way to communicate that because truly all-powerful would produce, and our construct would produce the dilemma that Augustine has put forward, that if God is all-powerful, then he is somehow capable of making a rock so big that he cannot pick it up. Right. That is the entire conversation around analogy and metaphor and the way that we communicate and speak about God. We have to understand that somehow we are communicating both infinitely and finitely. That we are somehow living in this tension that we are saying things that are true about God but only true in a limited capacity because of our finite understanding of God. You look so lost. So like I, I've, let me, let me try to recap and you can tell me if I'm on the right track or not. Okay. This is this is why I'm here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Clayton is literally here to ask um, the questions that you might ask. So, what you're trying to say is that Augustine trying to communicate or when he says or asks a question, is there a rock so big? Can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Right. Is a way of communicating the The finite piece of human language. That's what Augustine is using that analogy for. for. Yep. Right. 
That's what you're trying to say. Yes. That the way that we understand God is very limited. It's impossible to truly understand him because we don't live on the same plane okay. that he has. Because we are it's, finite. it's a line trying to understand a cube. Correct. Okay. Capiche? Capiche. Okay. So moving on. What Ben and Randy actually end up talking about is analogy and metaphor. And really, the conversation they end up having is one about story. Um, I'm just going to read you what they say. Both story and God's identity, which are shaped by analogy, bring us to a pair of theological terms, economia and theologia. Economia is the story of God's act, and theologia is our contemplation of God's divine identity. God's being and God's acts Excuse me, that's the beer talking. God's being and God's act are distinctively bound together, and our engagement of the two is reciprocal. We will unavoidably theologize, think cogently about who God is, about the basic story and history of what God is doing. Theologia depends and reflects on economia. So what's happening is, Economy is God acting in the world. The things that have happened that we point to and go, those are divine. Mm -hmm. Those are moments of divinity. Moments of healing and restoration. and Whatever right. you subjectively come up with, that that's a moment of divinity. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is. I think what they're actually talking about is the things recorded in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. But theologia is simply our contemplation or our understanding or our communication About of divine that. acts. That's literally all it is. It's us simply trying to communicate something about what the way in which we've seen God act. So, in a way, <clears throat> the Gospels are theologia. No, the Gospels are economia. No, no, no. They are writings telling of the story of Jesus, which would be economia. But not if you include an inspiration element into it. Okay. It's God's act of divine revelation. It's God's act of history. Okay. That would be a moment of divinity because of inspiration. Okay. And so theologia is a Us commentary on that. the Gospels. Yeah, that's theologia. The gospel itself, economia. Okay. Understand? Yes. Okay. Now, the final conversation that they have, and it's actually not the final conversation, but contemporary theological relevance. We've had this conversation a lot throughout this. It's yeah. a question of objectivity versus subjectivity. Yeah. Uh, need I tell you where I've landed? Um, I think all truth is relative outside of twofold. That there is a creator God. That I find to be objective. Mm -hmm. I can look at the world. I can determine. Now granted, once again, if you listen to the last episode, 
very clearly doing theology from below, very given over to Aquinas in that way. Um, not Bardian enough. Apologies, Randy and Ben. I know you're shaking in your boots right now. Um, I can determine that there's a creator God that exists objectively. Um, and I can also, I believe, objectively determine that that God revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Outside of that, all truth is subjective. Yeah. Um, though I believe that those are the only two objective truths that exist in the world. Yeah. Minus like math <laughs> or science. So then you're cool with like affirming Zeno? I don't know what that is. He's he's a pre-Socratic that said that movement is impossible because the distance between me and that camera is endless because you can always take halves of halves. That's not true because eventually a half of a half is going to yield to getting. But there. then you take a half of that, and then you take a half of that, then you take a half of that, then you take a half of that. So you're saying, therefore, and and unto infinity, therefore, movement is impossible because I cannot travel between here and that camera because that distance is infinite. So what? That's the dumbest crap I've ever heard because I can go pick that camera up right now. Can you though? I can. Are you sure? I'm 1,000% sure that I can get up, go walk, and pick up that camera. Are you sure that's not just in your head? <laughs> no, I am 1,000% positive. I'm kidding. It's a joke. It's a joke. But when you said I, like, math is an objective truth. Well, like two I, plus I two to, will... I had to go there. Yeah, two plus two I, will always equal four. Yes. Two plus two will never equal five. Right. That makes it objective. Yes. Agreed. Um. E equals MC squared will always yield me the formula to create a bomb. <laughs> That's objective. Um, but back on <laughs> the main topic. They say something here that I, I really liked. Theology should have differences because of human experience. Theology will always be dictated by human experience. Whether, like we talked about last week, whether we want it to or not, whether you believe that it should or not, it will. Um, and you know what? Maybe that's just okay. Well, and the, the subheading that that quote that Clayton just read is under is can, can theology, theology change? change? Yeah. Um, and what I will tell you, and I had this view even when I was still rooted in fundamentalism. I used to rewrite my statement of faith every six months. Because my theology would change so much in six months. The way that I was understanding, the way that I was thinking, the way that God was revealing himself. Um, my theology could change largely enough in six months that I would have to rewrite my statement of faith. My personal one. I haven't done that practice in over a year because I could wake up six months one day, write it, wake up the next day and rewrite it again. Well, that's um, what, that's honestly what I was about to say is like my theology these days changes like the wind sometimes. It'd it be like that sometimes. Like when you're deconstructing things like at, at this kind of rate. It'd be like that Things sometimes. change. It'd be like that. It really honestly depends on what side of the bed you wake up on sometimes. Well, you know, I, I said it, I don't remember what, 
Oh, I think I talked about it on Praxing Presence in the Wisdom Stories um, episode. But, like, I if you would have asked me before, like, conversations about the Bible or whatever, like my qualms or conversations around inerrancy, my go-to place would have been Canaanite Conquest mm-hmm. and how that stands in direct contradiction to Jesus. Um, but now, a year into being separated and fixing the beat by the time this comes out, officially divorced... Yeah, no, that, that's not where my mind goes. My conversation goes around like mass divorce and Nehemiah and Ezra and um, the ways in which divorce and marriage are inconsistent in the biblical narrative. Yep. Um, that's where my mind goes. Um, and, and all of that, 1,000% because of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so should your theology change? Absolutely. If it if, doesn't, I might venture to say that you're in an unhealthy place. Well, I'm not going to go that far. Um, but what I would say, and this is me personally, I'm not saying you're wrong. Mm. I'm just not comfortable saying that. Um, what I would say is if if your theology is not changing, yeah. I would question whether or not you're growing. Mm. Um, because I personally believe that as you interact with the divine the divine slowly begins to reveal more and more of her slash himself to you. Wouldn't lack of growth mean unhealth? Like if you have a plant that is not growing, it's not producing fruit, it's unhealthy. There does come a time where things stop growing. Because it dies. No, think about you. Your body is no longer growing in actual, like, physical stature. There comes a point where things stop growing. If things grow forever, um, God comes down and shuts them down, looking at you, Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel. Um, There must come a point where things stop growing. I need to think about that. I need to think about that. Um, I don't know. I just don't like the language of unhealthy. I'm not sure that I disagree with you that growth normally means health. Mm. I actually have used that metaphor before and actually tend to like it. Yeah, I, um, I think that it's true. I didn't like really getting bit in the ass by it on the, on my on my own end in, in this conversation but uh yeah i guess it would be unhealth in a way uh, this, this right here all yeah. metaphors break down at some level at some level they do but what i'm trying to say fundamentally what i'm trying to say is if you're not growing what are you doing right like whether yeah. you want to call it unhealth or not if you're not growing what are you doing and if you're not growing if you're not questioning your theology if you're not deconstructing something at some level you're not growing so what are you doing 